It's true that there is polarization. It's true that it's at historically high levels. It's true that polarization that we have is dangerous and problematic, but it's also true that it's overestimated. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Crossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Today, we'll be talking about political polarization. First, I would like to thank our listeners again and to point out that you've been fantastic and please continue rating us on whatever platform you're using. We have a special guest, and this time we have Jay Van Bavel, who is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience uh, from the New York University, and he's a director of the Social Perception and Evaluation Lab. Jay, uh, it's a great privilege to have you on our podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to get started uh, by telling a little story, a little introduction. I am at Jay's apartment, and it's actually a true story. Oh, right. And, I don't know this uh, story. <laughs> Yeah, you don't know the story. So here it goes. I'm at Jay's apartment. Fortunately, uh, when Jay was gone once, I I could stay there uh, for a few days. uh, Jay, Jay, did you know Igor was in your apartment? I mean, do you two know (laughs) each other? I'm just learning this now. Right. I I thought this was the first time you two had met. So, I mean, if you've been in his apartment, Igor, you've got some explaining to do. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. I definitely do. I was bored because uh, it was, I think, a very bad day. And so I looked at this marvelous uh, library that Jay had. And uh, first, uh, I looked at uh, Jordan Peterson's The Maps of Meaning, and I, <laughs> I really couldn't figure out what that book was about. I tried really hard for about a day, but I could. And then the second one was The Watchman. And The Watchman is the series of, uh, it's a cartoon series. Uh, it's a limited edition, Pulitzer Prize winning, the only Pulitzer Prize winning cartoon series about uh, what would have happened if Nixon uh, would have remained in power and there would still be a Cold War and there are two superpowers uh, that are still kind of fighting and the animosity is extreme. And the take-home message of the Watchmen is that, uh, you know, you need some kind of an external threat. And we'll possibly get to that. But the, the point in that, uh, in the Watchmen, was that it was about the partisanship and sort of extreme level partisanship. And you needed superheroes to overcome this partisanship. Well, I just wanted to just pick up on that. So are you, are you, yeah, okay. are you saying extreme partisanship leads in the cultural imagination to like, we need superheroes. Um, is there something going on the lines of, well, it's good. It feels like good and evil, doesn't it? Everything's quite binary when you've got partisanship and everything's quite binary in superhero worlds. Like, you know, when it's like the nineties and all the seventies, when it's a little sort of, everything's a bit messier, uh, the idea of a hero and a, and a villain seems kind of too simplistic, but I don't, I can sort of see, you know, partisanship leading to, you know, the binary kind of nature of superheroes. I don't, Jay, what do you think? Are we onto something? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I just went and watched the Avengers movie with my son this weekend. And yeah, I mean, this is, it's like an existential threat, the whole thing. And you have superheroes coming in and, and helping. And I think this is the theme that cuts across so much of literature and fiction is how do you bring different people together? What are the things that divide us? And psychologists, I think, are well equipped to understand this. I mean, we've been studying these issues for decades and we have some ideas around what is the kind of set of ingredients that pull people apart and what are the potential solutions to those issues? Do, do you see any of the, uh, in the ways these Marvel films are playing out, do you see any of them having read any of your papers? Do you see that kind of turning up? In- <laughs> I don't think they've read any of my papers, what? but um, I will say this. <laughs> um, Ant-Man, 
who is a critical member of the Avengers. Uh-huh. Um, his daughter is in the same school as my daughter. In fact, in the same class as my daughter. Cool. So, um, so maybe I should pull him aside next time and see so, if he's hey, read I got any. Some ideas. <laughs> wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I wanted to. I wanted to ask a completely different question, but it's when I'm not looking into this kind of thing. Uh, I also teach maths. And so when I was getting ready for this podcast, I was reading some of your papers, like all the sort of, you know, the big Hollywood hotshots read Jay Van Babel's papers. Um, and um, I came across this bit where you refer to even people's maths ability is influenced by their political leanings. And I kind of I spat my coffee out when I, when I was reading that. <laughs> I was, I, I kind of think of maths as this sort of like the final bastion where, you know, there's one answer you're going to, and then you were saying even something as sort of rarefied and as pure as that actually is not, um, uh, does not escape this kind of broad political partisanship. So could you give me a bit of uh, something to hold on to? I'm, I'm worried about this, Jay. Yeah, so I guess the, the study I think you're talking about is from Dan Cahan at Yale Law School. Right. And he's done this really fascinating and quite controversial research showing that when people are trying to problem solve and figure out how to do the math of a, of a very mundane issue, um, just like the type of math problem solving uh, sets that we had as kids in elementary school and high school, most of us who are good at math can figure those out and people who struggle at math uh, are less successful at figuring those out. You take the exact same problems with the exact same uh, numbers and solution embedded in it, and you overlay it with an issue of gun control. So um, if the math comes out in a way that suggests that gun control is successful, then people who don't like gun control but are otherwise good at math are less likely to get it right than they would have if it had nothing about gun control. And, and vice versa, people who think that gun control is an effective solution to shootings, um, if you provide a problem, a math problem, mm-hmm. where the math works out and it suggests, well, gun control doesn't work so well, mm-hmm. um, people who are otherwise good at math struggle a bit more with that one. And so basically what it does is it takes people like yourself who are really good at math and it kind of knocks them down a notch because yeah. they have their political identity on the line and they don't really want want to find a solution that suggests that they're on the wrong side of the, uh, these types of political issues. Sure, but they don't want to get their maths wrong. Right? <laughs> but that's so, embarrassing. So, so this is key. The key is that if people value accuracy, mm-hmm. like, you know, scientists, um, then they might be more motivated to lean on their math, even if it produces a solution they don't like. Right. But I, I think what the research is talking to is the average person, even if the average person might be politically sophisticated, their identity is not one as a scientist to be accurate, even if it means you're wrong. Um, they have other identities that are more important to them. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of those are identities that are political in nature. Right. Well, we're going to get, we haven't finished with this. We can come back to this, but, um, I want to ask one other thing before we kind of get into, um, the research. And it was about, again, I was reading some of the, some of your work and it said that it looks like there's a relationship between scientific curiosity and interest in consuming news, which is from sources that say disagree with your politics. Now, this kind of is, uh, sort of surprised me. And I thought, well, we've got some scientists here today. You know, here we are. Do you guys, does that feel right? You're both active scientists. Do you find yourself reaching out to read perhaps some, I don't know, conservative uh, news sources more than perhaps your non-scientist friends? Does that, is that an experience either of you can relate to? Maybe Jake yeah, addresses first. <laughs> okay, so so all the way on this, uh, Igor's already seen my library at home, seen everything <laughs> from the Watchmen to Jordan Peterson. So it's pretty um, broad. I, I'll, 
I'll just I'll just give some background. Jordan was actually on my dissertation committee when I was a PhD student at uh, University of Toronto. So I took his class and and read the book long before it was controversial. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I have political disagreements with friends and family members and. Uh, after the 2016 election, I spent a lot of time reading websites and news sources that I wasn't even really aware of because I was trying to understand the perspective of my brother who disagrees with me politically. And it got me reading things like Breitbart and, and Daily Caller trying to understand what is what are the priors and information that people are bringing into political debates. And I recognize that it's different from mine. And and even if I don't agree with it, I think it's important to have debates, but also um, as a scientist to understand uh, where people are coming from on these issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the mechanism seems to make sense to me that, you know, scientists are curious. That's what's brought them into science. And, and then, you know, you might look at the world of politics or, or the world generally and say, yeah, I want to understand how that works. And I, therefore, I, my curiosity is overriding my sort of partisanship. But I mean, you, you both must meet lots of scientists, right? You were, you were surrounded by scientists. Or the, do you find them generally as a, as a species <laughs> uh, more kind of politically open minded? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I think that they're open-minded in that they're willing to reach out and read a lot of information. Sure. I don't know if they're more open-minded in the sense that they're willing to change their position mm. uh, very easily based on a new bit of information that they might receive. Mm. Right. So that's probably what I would say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, uh, and we'll get to that uh, right in a second, uh, about the mechanisms that may be driving polarization. Yeah. But I think with politicians, uh, with uh, academics, with uh, normal people, uh, they're all human. And so it's just like maybe they're different. Yeah. They're different uh, things that may be driving us that are more uh, desirable for us. But I, I bet it's easier to publish something that uh, corresponds to a particular conscious, unconscious political agenda of the gatekeeper in academia. Uh, so, you know, like mm. uh, publishing something that uh, to some extent confirms with a somewhat more liberal orientation would be easier. In the US, it's much easier to publish uh, something on uh, in very prestigious journals on topics of inequality uh, uh, and how it's bad as compared to imagine somebody would have found something that, oh, inequality actually doesn't matter. Oh, inequality is great. It would be very, very hard to publish <laughs> yeah, in part yeah. because uh, uh, it would be more scrutinized. And I guess we'll get to mm. that in exactly the next segment. So I, w- I want to dive in into this uh, topic of politics, psychological mechanisms and polarization. So, Jay, maybe for our more general audience, how would you define political polarization in the first place? What is it? I mean, polarization means different things. If you're looking at uh, elites and their voting patterns, it would mean that they're not voting across the aisle or collaborating with people from different parties. Um, What we mean when we study it psychologically is just that people, it's often referred to as affective polarization, which is just Mm -hmm. that basically we don't really like people who don't agree with us politically. We don't want to spend time with them. You know, Um, it might mean that you don't want to go to even to a dentist uh, who uh, doesn't share your political affiliation, even though they might otherwise be an excellent dentist. So those are the types of decisions that it starts to permeate into all these other aspects of our life. Right. And so when you started studying that and uh, the notion of uh, polarization and partisanship, and uh, you you identified uh, more recently a set of biases that are more common among partisans. So what kind of biases are those? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different biases, and we've tried to pull them together in our paper on the partisan brain. Basically, what we've started with is the assumption that a lot is going on underneath the hood when you're looking at political debates. And mm-hmm. so it's just like if you had a car that didn't start, you need to take it into the mechanic, or at least I would, because I don't know what I'm doing under a car hood. <laughs> um, and they'll figure out, okay, is it something with the starter that's broken? You know, a spark plug isn't working, needs to be replaced, fan belt isn't is broken. Um, all of these types of different issues might be the reason that your car is not working. So you take it into the mechanic, they look up, open the hood and kind of figure out what part of the process is broken down. Mm -hmm. And what we've tried to do is uh, do that with inside the human mind. And so this is one area where neuroscience is useful. You can basically now with modern uh, neuroimaging technologies, uh, essentially do what a mechanic does and look under the hood and figure out are people not agreeing because, um, you know, someone's engaging in motivated reasoning? Or is it something about their memory is selectively encoding certain information that confirms their beliefs? Um, is it something about their directing attention to some things, you know, different headlines or, or different news channels? Or is it some kind of emotional response that they're having or some combination of these things? And so that's what we've tried to do is realize that Um, when you look through this huge literature on polarization and partisanship, that Mm -hmm. people have been studying this for for decades and decades. What it suggests is that it might be multiple different biases that people have. And so this is what we've been trying to do is figure out, get a framework that combines, you know, the neuroscience, the psychology, and the political science, and then uh, basically bring all these different tribes together and the insights they have to try to develop a general framework. And then what we can do is if we figure out, you know, the reason that you might, I disagree on Ford nation is due to one or both of us are engaging in motivated reasoning. Well, that suggests we need some kind of intervention or solution at that level. Whereas if it's something about attention that we're just attending to different news uh, or different uh, media sources, then that is going to require a different solution. That solution to that is probably going to be exposure to things you don't agree on. But Uh even if, if we're getting the same exposure, but we're still disagreeing, that it suggests a different type of problem. So that's what we're trying to figure out right now. There may be like one meta bias uh, for <laughs> a liberal meta bias here, and we'll get to this sort of possible asymmetries in a bit. But uh, is a question, uh, why is it bad to be tribal in the first place? Is it like sensible to just follow uh, whatever your team is following and whatever the crowd around you is following? Yes, that's a great question. So the reason I'm interested in partisanship isn't because I'm a political scientist. It's actually because I study identity. And I've been studying identity for 15 years, uh, looking at everything from when we create teams based on the flip of a coin, all the way to racial identities, team membership. So when we're sports fans, and we're debating, you know, whether the referee made the right call. And so all of those same types of psychology apply to politics as well. And the reason that identity matters is because identity uh, throughout human history has helped bind us into effective teams that cooperated, shared a sense of reality and purpose, worked together, um, and navigate parts of the environment that uh, as individuals we couldn't have done on our own. And so cooperation is basically humans' singular advantage over pretty much every other primate and every other species on Earth. And so it serves all these useful functions for us, but 
the problem is that it can go awry. It can go haywire. Mm-hmm. And so this is essentially what you have now with uh, mo- uh, certain issues in modern politics, which is that people are have these kind of tribalistic approaches that worked well for solving certain problems, don't work well in uh, many political discussions. So one thing that I'm really interested about here, Jay, especially in your work, is this trying to track down the change. Why is it happening? What is driving this type of dramatic shifts that happen in the United States and probably other places too. I think also happened in Canada over the course of the last 20 years. And one thing that you bring up in your work is this notion of eco chambers and their role for the uh, transmission of certain messages. So can you tell us a little bit more of what are eco chambers and what, uh, what did you find out? Yeah, so echo chambers are essentially when people select into a certain type of uh, community or information source and become absorbed. And basically, they are looking for people who sound like them or are just going to confirm and, and repeat their belief system. And so you have had this in the U.S. for a long time with Fox News. And then there are now kind of liberal offshoots that provide you know similar right. affirmation of a left-wing belief system, like MSNBC is often used as an example. But now you have it on social media, and so you can customize very carefully uh, the people that you follow on things like Facebook or Twitter. And not only that, but the algorithms for these social media platforms, uh, based on who you follow and who you like, give you more of the same. And and YouTube is under a lot of criticism because they end up taking you down this kind of rabbit hole of extremism. You might go online to watch a Jordan Peterson video, and three or four videos later, you're watching some, you know, white (laughs) supremacist. Um, recruitment device. Right. And so what it's trying to do is these are often the companies using these are just trying to increase engagement. They're trying to predict what you might like based on something. But the incentive structure for them is basically just to keep you online and engaged and worked up as much as possible. And so what we found when we've studied, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, using Twitter uh, to talk about politics like gun control, climate change, same-sex marriage. When they're talking with, uh, you know, sharing their beliefs and thoughts on these issues, when they use moral, emotional language, mm-hmm. words like disgusted, uh, outraged, angry, what it does is you can see that that's when you see echo chambers forming. And so th- that type of language gets your messages shared. Mm-hmm. So for every word you have like that in a tweet, it's 15 to 20% more likely to get retweeted by someone else. Mm-hmm. So that's good. That's mm-hmm. usually what we want on social media. Um, but when you actually look at the data, you see that um, it's only getting retweeted for the most part by people who already share your political beliefs. So liberals are retweeting liberal messages. Mm-hmm. Conservatives are retweeting conservative messages. So polarization is increasing both in the U.S. and in other countries. And if you look only at the U.S., as uh, a lot of North Americans tend to do, you think, oh, it's very, you know, it's just Trump or whatever. It's just Barack Obama and then Trump. Uh, Or maybe it's just Fox News and whatever came afterwards. But the process seems to be occurring in Europe as well and other parts of the world as well suggests that the U.S. is not the only country, and it's not unique to this American political landscape. So what do you think is the chief factor, if there is a single or maybe multiple factors, contributing to this global shift in polarization over time? 
Yeah, so this is a great question. I'm glad you're taking a much more global perspective than just Canada or the U.S. Right. Yeah, these things seem to have a global impact. People who are were involved in the 2016 election, like Steve Bannon, are in Europe consulting on all these elections nonstop. So, yep. um, so this is definitely an issue. It seems global in scope. And so I'll just throw out a few factors I think might be involved. So if we assume mm-hmm. it's global, what are the common changes? One I do think is social media. That's something that's not just specific to North America, mm-hmm. and it might be right. impacting other countries. And this is where you can have actors like Russia create trolls and bots to influence uh, political discourse. Uh, another factor, I think, is growing inequality. A lot of the rhetoric is around economic issues, inequality. And so uh, there's lots of correlational evidence suggesting that as inequality grows, polarization grows. And then that plays to a populist agenda, which tends to be very divisive. And then the last thing, and I think this is something that's happening in Europe more than obviously North America, uh, but you have immigration, migration. Uh, Certainly these are part of Trump's rhetoric. These things end up playing a role in uh, Canadian political rhetoric, but I think they've been amplified in Europe. And so those are the types of issues that people who want to, that might benefit from polarization will uh, bring into the discourse. Um, Those are the types of issues that foreign actors can weaponize to interfere with elections. And so, uh, and these are things that, uh, you know, a lot of voters care about and they require nuance and delicacy and often certain political actors benefit from removing nuance from these discussions. I wanted to actually pick up on the social media point then and get into this, this work you, you guys have done about how the language people use on social media, how that influences whether that message is retweeted or diffuses through the network. So when I was reading some of the work about this, you refer to moral emotional language. So before we talk about what effect that has on whether it's likely to diffuse, what does that mean? Because I think in one of your papers, you say not just moral or emotional, but it's this like alchemy of moral emotional language. So what's, could you give us some examples of the distinctions of those terms? So we just get our heads around that. Yeah, it's a great question. So moral uh, language can be very uh, much more impartial. It can be word like justice or fairness, um, or it can be heavily emotionally laden, like hate or disgusted, uh, con- you know, contempt. And then emotional language, however, can also be non-moral. It can include words like sadness or happy okay. or joy. And so those terms also come up that just purely emotional and purely uh, moral come up also in lots of these conversations around political discourse, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they don't tend to be correlated with polarization and they don't tend to be uh, things that go viral on platforms like Twitter. It seems that what attracts attention in in what I would say the social social media operates on what's called an attention economy, right. which is you need to grab people's attention for, to get them to read your message, click your link, share your message, like it. Uh, and so there's an incentive structure that gets rewarded when people use this moral emotional language, mm-hmm. and they might use it for uh, self-interested reasons. Um, but as it gets into the discourse, it tends to be divisive. So, yeah, so this this type of language, this kind of special brew of the two, you found some interesting things about that. So when that, that turns up in a tweet, what happens in terms of retweets? So for every moral, emotional word that people put in a tweet, mm. it's 15 to 20% more likely to be retweeted. 
So if you put three or four words like that in a tweet, you're suddenly talking about your message is almost twice as likely to get shared. And uh, if, if that's you or me, maybe that only means it gets shared an extra 10 times. But if you're a political actor, so for example, if you're Donald Trump, that means that message gets shared 20,000 times instead of 10,000. Right. It means that message ends up leading the news, all, you know, a lot of like TV uh, media coverage of a political event. It means it gets picked up by mainstream media and it gets discussed uh, and drives a conversation. And so if you're uh, somebody who has a lot of followers, you can uh, really leverage that to have a huge impact on who sees your messages this is this is absolute gold isn't it to, to, to know this. Yeah. i'm gonna be writing my new tweets with a whole new insight <laughs> but doesn't this lead or are we seeing the natural consequence of this economy like is this moral emotional language just becoming more and more common because if if people are finding out whether through design or, or reading jay van babel's papers that this is going to have this effect uh, aren't we just naturally going to see more and more of that in in, in the, this kind of space yeah, I think people update, they get rewarded, they figure out, they look to role yeah. models to figure out what works, and role yeah. models tend to be people who are prominent and have big followings. And so you can, I actually have to say this, that uh, on Twitter, on science Twitter, uh, which I've been on for, you know, several years now, and I, I love and I use a lot, and I follow mainly scientists, people who are high quality uh, at providing information. Sure. I feel yeah. like this was not, you know, the types of fights and debates that we have and how they escalate. I felt like it wasn't around to the same extent six or seven years ago. And I, I feel like it's increasingly part of the way that scientists talk about things. Right. And so I do yeah. feel like we're responding to incentives. I, I once saw a, a blogger, uh, like a, st- a statistician blogger, and he said something along, along the lines of, if he gives like a normal title for his blog, he'll find it gets, you know, a thousand page views, which is a lot, right? If you wanted to get your work out there, your yeah. name out there, that's a big impact. But when he uses like some hardcore moral emotional language in the title of his blog, like everything at such and such journal is effed, then he'll get 10,000 page views. Yeah. And so people... The, the thing about social media is if I say a joke like that at a party, you know, only eight or nine people might hear it. But if I put that in a blog or on a tweet, I can measure the specific quantified uh, impact of it immediately yeah. um, because you get your feedback right away. And, and, and normally in, in social gatherings, we can't quantify whether people liked our message or not. Now we get immediate immediate precise quantitative feedback right. so it's hard not for people who are yeah. bloggers or or tweeters or whatever not to respond to that you guys should do it with your blog I was gonna say. Put, a, put some words like that in your blog titles <laughs> just be negative yeah um i i was just thinking does moral emotional language um does it work with positive moral emotional language like if you you know this i think what the you know the prime minister did today was really made me feel so happy and i'm so i so approve of what they did you know something positive <laughs> and does it work like that way or does it only work if it's negative moral emotional language yeah that's a great question so when we analyzed three topics originally uh, gun control same-sex marriage and climate change the time we collected the data was right after the supreme court of the united states ruled in favor of same-sex marriage and so one of the big hashtags at that point was hashtag love wins on Twitter. Right. And so a ton of the content around same-sex marriage was actually positive uh-huh. because it was with content like love and positive moral emotions. And so we found that 
that was also a case where moral emotions spread um, when it's positive. And so it's really about moral emotions per se, and they can be positive or negative. We found evidence uh, of both of them. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about asymmetries in political polarization. We started talking about, you know, bias on the left versus bias on the right already a little bit. And um, in some of your work, you, for instance, show that, if I understand correctly, conservative elites, great, great attraction, uh, great diffusion when you use this moral, emotional language compared to liberal elites, even when accounting for extremity and other uh, cues. So what is explaining this effect? It's interesting. Yeah, so just to restate it, when we analyzed a yeah. year's worth of data from every single, you know, from uh, Trump and Clinton, as well mm-hmm. as every senator, you know, 100 different senators, uh, every member uh, of Congress in the year leading up to election, we found that, uh, first of all, we found, again, evidence of moral contagion among political leaders, just like we do among everyday people. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing you're hinting at is that Conservatives who use moral emotional language had that th- their messages were more likely to be re- reshared or go viral. And when we looked at the data, interestingly, the thing that seemed to account for the difference between conservatives and liberals is that conservatives also used a lot of positive moral emotional words mm. around themes like religion and family. And so they were using, you know, a broader language palette. Uh, of moral emotional language would be my interpretation of it. And so for them, uh, that was a really powerful device to get their message out. So it's interesting. That's uh, basically consistent with uh, the claim made by one of your colleagues, uh, John Hyde. Is that correct? Or would you interpret it differently? Yeah, and John Hyde talks a lot about left-right differences. Um, I think this is the one area where where he, you know, agrees with John Jost. You know, <laughs> and that there are there are these asymmetries between left and right. Obviously, many people are trying to argue there's uh, it's mostly symmetrical, but our data keeps finding some consistent evidence of asymmetries between the left and right. So another symmetry, default positions of the news stories, Republicans versus Democrats, Republicans believe, Democrats doubt. What's going on there? Yeah, I I remember seeing something that you you had some information about Republicans tend to believe stories like about Bat Boy. Now, Bat Boy is, <laughs> is not a story that made it over to the UK. So maybe you can fill us in in the Bat Boy thing and, and tell us how that reveals like the Republicans. Yeah, the Republicans tend to just believe something, even the Bat Boy story, and Democrats yeah. tend to start by disbelieving it. So I'm a little bit, I'm surprised by that. So what, yeah, what's happening there? So first of all, uh, we're talking now about some studies I ran with uh, collaborators looking at fake news belief. Right. And what we find is when the news, the fake news is about, uh, you know, a negative news about your preferred candidate, you don't believe it. And so this is actually where Democrats and Republicans are pretty similar. As long as fake news is coming in and it's negative about their their team, they tend to disbelieve it. And so that's called a symmetry between left and right when identity is involved. But if you show them fake news that has nothing about politics, um, so one of the big ones when I was a kid growing up was about Bat Boy, um, but it can be about celebrities like... So I'll give you a British example. I think one of our stories was about Camilla maybe getting into alcohol rehab. <laughs> other I ones were about ce- celebrities. <laughs> yeah, other ones about celebrities like paying enormous amount of money to have their eyebrows waxed. Yeah. These are all, this is normally when I grew up as a kid, this is what fake news was. It wasn't about yeah. politics. It yeah. was about silly stories like Elvis spotted at a 7-Eleven outside, yeah. you know, Oklahoma. Um, so when you show people these stories, 
uh, this is an interesting case where Democrats don't believe any of this fake news, unless it's negative fake news about Trump. (laughs) Um, Whereas Republicans have almost like an opposite, it seems like a default, which is that they believe this kind of classic fake news, even when it's not about politics. And they also believe the fake news that's negative about Clinton and Democrats, um, but they don't believe the negative fake news about Trump. So it seems like the, there there are symmetries when we're thinking about how Democrats and Republicans believe fake news about the other team. Yeah. Um, but there is a critical asymmetry or critical difference between the left and the right when we're talking about how they approach just regular fake news stories. Simple. And this is where Republicans seem to kind of walk around the world more credit yeah. Uh, you know, willing to believe things that are coming from low information news sources. Did, did that surprise you? I, I was surprised, yeah. I mean, that's why it's always nice to include a control condition. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> you never know what you're going to find. When you're reading your work, um, quite often liberals come out looking quite good out of it generally. And that's not me saying there's any liberal bias in your work at all. I'm just saying quite often it seems that like, oh, well, as we've shown, the liberals are more open-minded and quite often there's um, negative things that are found out about conservatives. Like, for example, they they have a need for epistemic closure and things like this. So uh, that's the kind of sense I got generally. It seemed like liberals came out looking quite rosy. Can you can you give me some examples, some f- other counterexamples, so things that your your work has shown that conservatives tend to do better than liberals. And I realise as I'm asking this question, it feels like I'm creating partisanship, and that's not, uh, not that's not my intention at all. But um, d- is there anything that has been thrown up that you think you know what? It seems from the data that conservatives do this better than liberals. Yeah. So first of all, yeah, I find some evidence of symmetries between the left and the right, especially once identity becomes active, like in our fake news studies. But there's definitely differences between the left and the right um, that I observe as well. And so one that you mentioned, and it's not really my research, but liberals tend to score higher in openness. Um, A lot of personality studies, you know, exact same samples, also find that conservatives score higher on measures of conscientiousness. Okay. Now, academics care a lot about openness. Right. And so when we hear some group of people that score low on openness, seems that's a bad, pe- yeah. you know, that's that sounds like a pejorative thing. Yeah. I, I would say in many communities, openness isn't valued more than, say, hard work or conscientiousness. Sure. And so, and many employers you know, outside of academia and the arts, liberal arts, probably care way more about conscientiousness than openness. And so um, Mm. I I think that the data suggests that, you know, conservatives score higher on some of these things that are Mm. highly socially valued. Um, It's just that those things aren't valued as much as openness among the academics doing the research. So they don't tend Um, to flag up those things. They don't. Yeah. So if you go ask, if you go ask my, like my cousins, which they value more, you know, and I'm from like a rural conservative community, they would say, if it's duh, you know, conscientiousness is way more important than openness. Why are you acting like that's a bad thing? Yeah. Right. (laughs) To clarify, maybe also, um, I'm I'm curious what you think about that, Jay. I find that uh, there's always a conflation of openness to, new experiences, which is this uh, facet of personality that a lot of personality psychologists are studying, and the notion of open-mindedness. And sometimes they, um, the measures tend to converge, but often they deal with somewhat different things. I mean, you can be uh, open-minded uh, about people's opinions, but you will not uh, be constantly seeking new experiences, in part because you really like the community that you live in. Yeah, so let me say this. When I think of ideology... 
and, and this is going to be me speculating wildly. I think, well, where does this come from? There's a normal distribution for the most part in many cultures around the world on conservatism versus liberalism. Right. Um, and, and then I think, okay, from an evolutionary perspective, these would be adaptive in different environments. So if you're in a threatening environment, it's a highly dangerous environment, it's probably more adaptive to stay close to home, stick close to kin, mm. um, use strategies for resource management that have worked in the past, like only sampling certain types of food or, or uh, you know, places that you know to be safe. Um, when you're in a safe environment, the optimal strategy is foraging. It's exploration. It's trying new things. It's connecting to people who are different than you and learning from them, getting tools and insights from them. And so... In evolutionary, uh, the range of evolutionary environments, different approaches are probably more adaptive in different environments. And that's probably why you have this variation, so the humans could survive in all these different environments. Now, if you drop those people into the middle of New York, where I sit right now, the adaptive strategy is for to optimize your career success is probably going to be liberalism. It's going to be meet a lot of different people. It's super, super safe here. There's people from different cultures that you're bumping up against all the time um, and strangers and relying on kin and staying close to home and not trying different foods and different things, probably not going to be helpful. But if I mm-hmm. drop you into a war-torn country, staying close to home, only trusting people who are kin or, or extended family or people who are part of some tribal network that you have is probably going to help you survive in that environment. And so to me, it's not that one is good or bad in all environments. Mm. When I think of them, I think of them as different strategies. Mm. Uh, you can call it explore, exploration or exploitation would be mm. what ecologists would probably call it. And one ideology is optimized for one set of environments and one set of, one strategy. Another strategy and ideology is optimized for others. And so I think I just, you know, we're, we've now never met each other. We're exploiting the capacity to trust one another and cooperate with people mm-hmm. we've never met who have different backgrounds, who are from different countries. Right, right. And it benefits all of us to have this collaboration going on here. Our, our tendencies to approach those type of situations works well in the environment that we all live in. Probably wouldn't work well in other environments. So what kind of uh, war zone uh, did uh, your relatives grow up in? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my, my grandfather was in, in the Korean War, so um, who knows if that's part of it. But but I would say, so I come from a small town. Right. Um, and, and leaving that small town and, and not coming back is something that I always got pressure from my family. Why are you moving away? Why are you going to grad school? Why are you moving across the country? Why are you moving to another country? When are you going to come home? There's a different set of values based on right. family and connection. And I grew up valuing those things. And it's hard to leave that. Um, but it confers a lot of advantages. You know, they have a, uh, you know, a sense of meaning, a sense of connection, a, you know, a strong social support network and things that I've kind of had to do without when I'm abroad raising kids. I have two small kids raising them in my own yeah. city um, without my without grandparents and extended family around is yeah. incredibly hard financially, yeah. uh, emotionally. So there, there's trade-offs to those different approaches to the world. So one thing there may be also the notion of uncertainty that varies dramatically from one region to another. But it seems to me that it may go in different directions, don't you think? Uh, so in the war zone area, you're highly uncertain, but you have to be kind of vigilant because of that. And in more settled and, and you can, yeah, you have to be kind of vigilant to uncertainty and you, you, you just like have this uncertainty in the big city as well. But if you're in the more sort of quiet, peaceful 
or maybe rural sedentary environment where not many things change, where not a lot of uh, things like move at a, a, a rapid pace as things tend to move in New York City, for instance, or in the war zone. Then um, you 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 may not just like from that perspective, like the social ecology is such that you don't need to be open minded to different perspectives because you see you get accustomed to planning ahead to what exists in the given moment because that seems like it it was fine for now. Why should I change? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's not as much change, and if you like certainty, it's a very comforting environment. That's right. The people in small towns, which certainly the one I grew up in, people all tend to look alike, send the same background, same education, a lot of the similar cultural preferences. And so it's really easy to get along, you know, if you if you fit in there. Yeah. Um, the problem is, of course, if you don't fit in there, it's a tough environment to be in. And right. so, you know, you find who do you think moves away? You know, it's a lot of the kids that, that didn't fit in or got bullied or picked on. Um, so they yeah. move away right away to, to different environments where there's more diversity of perspectives and types of people and that will ensure that it stays like that as well because everyone that is yeah. a little bit different moves out <laughs> yeah you get selection bias yeah. and so that that definitely that you know there's trade-offs and so it's easy for me to say that's an advantageous environment because i had a good upbringing but sure i i you know saw other kids who, who didn't because mm. they didn't fit in mm. so for them you know i couldn't possibly you know wouldn't want to impose a judgment on 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 their choices for sure. Ken, I'm going to ask you now um, about. We're going to kind of sail into the final section now, and we're going to sort of look towards the horizon and try and come up with some um, ways of getting these different tribes to talk to each other. But I understand before. Before we can talk about that in any sensible way, we I think we need you to give us a bit of an overview of the partisan brain model, because from what I understand, it depends on exactly what the problem is in, and in which pro- part of the process that that will determine what the uh, tailored solution might be. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what are these things that are in, when you look under the, the, the hood, what are the kind of key factors that are, that are that are in this partisan brain model, and and how does that help us work out how we might combat them? Yeah, so there's I think two big parts of the model. So let me step back and say the first part, which is that people have goals. We have goals as as humans are an incredibly social species. Our goal is to often fit in, uh, feel connected to others. Um, we also want to belong to groups that are higher in status mm-hmm. that give us a sense of meaning and purpose. And so how we fill those goals is by belonging to communities um, where we belong. You know, we want to be fans. We want our, our favorite sports team to win the championship every year. We want to have a clear sense of what's right and wrong and, and how to behave to be successful in our environments. And so um, those goals are met through all different types of identities. And sometimes they get met by political identities. You know, you and, and you know, when you volunteer for a political party, it gives you a sense of belonging and purpose. And you want to feel like you're on the right side of history. It gives you a sense of morality. And if your party wins, you celebrate on election night. And if it loses, you drink your, you know, drown your sorrows or, mm-hmm. you know, some people cry if they're really identified and their party loses. And so all these goals are met by our identities and our communities. Um, but we also have another goal. And that's a goal to be accurate and understand reality as it exists right. and and uh, correctly understand what's going on in the world mm-hmm. so we can predict the future effectively. 
And most of the time, you know, for many of us, these goals are often aligned. You know, some identities we have, like for us as scientists, we fit in by being accurate. So if we publish a bunch of papers that prove to not replicate um, or have to be retracted because of errors and they were inaccurate, then we might not get tenure or promote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're a grad student, that happens. It's terrifying. You might not get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you see me on Facebook and I post like, you know, five or ten fake news stories over the next few weeks, you decide you don't want to invite me back for another podcast because you'll think I've lost it, right? Um, people start, you know, gossiping about me at the next conference around the bar after. And they're like, what's going on with Van Babel? You know, he's lost it. So in our world, we get status and belonging by being accurate. Right. But there's many other identities where you might get status or belonging by believing things that are inaccurate. So think of a cult. You get, a st- you get status mm-hmm. um, by you know, denying criticisms of your cult leader and critics of the cult and by insulating yourself from the rest of society. And so that's how you gain belonging and status, not by responding to the criticisms of the cult. And so if you have an highly identified with this cult movement, this is what they call drinking the Kool-Aid. You're willing to go to all kinds of lengths to buy into this belief system. Now, unfortunately, that happens with politics. A lot of, you know, hopefully we're voting and, and convinced by politicians we know to be accurate and not ones that lie. Um, but there's a long history of politicians that lie. And if they're lying, but, you know, we otherwise like them because they're going to help our party win and maybe the means, you know, justify the ends for some of us, uh, we might go along with the lies or uh, argue against people who point out the lies. Right. Um, we might even start to believe some of the lies because we trust the party and the politician. And so this is tug of war. Most of the time, as we're going through a world, we see information. How much value do we place on a news story? And often our, the ac- our goal to be accurate is competing with these other goals, to belong and fit in and have status. So that's the tug of war going on. And now... Can I just dive in with a question there? Like, yep, um, sure. So you're saying there's accuracy that is important, and then there's all these other things that are important, and there's sort of tension between them. But like, does that mean someone... If, do they know that they're being inaccurate? Is the idea that I'm, prefer- I'm prepared to sacrifice the accuracy because this other thing is more important? Or is it that they convince themselves that it is accurate? I suppose that's, that's the question, yeah. So, yeah, so that's an empirical question. I think a lot of times they might know they're lying, but they're still trying to convince you to support their candidate. The other thing I think that happens is they look the other way on lies, or they don't do a fact check because they don't want to find out the results. Right. Um, but but there's lots of evidence from political psychology that misinformation goes deeper. So there's evidence of misremembering lies right. that are bad about the other party. And so your you know parts of the brain that are involved in memory uh, are selectively encoding and selectively retrieving information that aligns with our identity. Hmm. And so, again, our attention and perceptual judgments might be messed up. And so we might be misperceiving things based on how it's presented to us by politicians. And this isn't just an issue in politics. So go to a basketball game or a football game or a hockey game and you see a ref and the ref doesn't give the call that you wanted and people hate the refs. Yeah. <laughs> Referees is one of the most unpopular positions to have. Why would you do that? I can't imagine. Everybody hates the ref. <laughs> Everybody thinks the ref is slanted against them. Yeah. Well, why? It's because they're clouded by their 
fan identity with a certain team. And so the moment you have an objective third party making judgments, people are going to take issue with it. And so um, this is why, you know, at a hockey games, they banned the song Three Blind Mice (laughs) because it was meant to disparage the refs and could whip up people into a violent frenzy around refs. And and after soccer games, people have shot soccer refs for making the call they didn't like. And so this happens in all kinds of sports. Well, the same psychology is playing out in politics. You know, we think that the media is biased. Well, a lot of it is because we're biased mm. and we can't see accurate or we don't want to see accurate reporting or we think that accurate reporting is biased against us because we're so biased. We don't. But the problem is we we have a biased blind spot. We don't see our own bias, but we can see it in others. And so, yeah, so so the, the solution to that is to either create identities that are based on accuracy, like a scientific one. Uh, and so. That's one thing. The other thing is to build norms in your communities that reinforce accuracy. So I'll, I'll say this is one advantage of being friends with a bunch of scientists is what <laughs> the one or two times I have shared fake news, I shared a, a quote that was inaccurate. If immediately all my scientist friends start piling into my comment section saying, did you know this is a, f- this is a fake quote? <laughs> and then I feel humiliated and I immediately delete it because was that the Mark leaving Twain it up. One? The Mark Twain one, yeah. Right, the, right, right. The, I love that Mark Twain quote that, what is it, that um, the truth uh, truth is just putting on its pants while a lie has traveled halfway around the world yeah. or something like that. <laughs> well, there's no evidence Mark Twain said it, so it's, it's effectively fake news. So, so you, you live in a community where you, it highly values accuracy so that you that you get slammed as soon as, as, soon as you, so that's a benefit to you that you're in that community. Yeah, so it weeds out my bad thoughts and bad data and bad studies I've shared. So, and then the other thing, and this is what scientists do, and this helps us catch our own biases, because we're humans. I think Igor pointed that out earlier, and he's, he's, turns out he's right. Fact check, true, yeah. we're humans. We've created institutions, so not only identities, not only norms, but institutions to check our biases. And I think the best one we've created is blind peer review, where you send a paper out to three anonymous reviewers, and you don't know who they are, and if they don't like your paper, they're not going to sign their name to it most of the time, Um, and so they can tear our paper apart. And then an editor, who is unconnected to us, um, reads the reviews and makes a decision. And so peer review is not perfect, and peer review gets a lot of criticism because peer reviews tend to be uncorrelated, but I think that's that's part of the design, which is that you're going to get three people with different expertise and different perspectives, all to poke holes in it. And so what that does is it incentivizes us before we submit a paper to really carefully scrutinize it to minimize all the errors so we can get it published. Because we care more about getting a paper published than we care about our belief system. I think when we, at least when we're mm. identity as a scientist is activated. And also because if we don't get a job, if we don't get tenure, if we don't get promoted, then we're not going to be able to bring home a paycheck and pay our bills and pay our mortgage and feed our family. So to us, that's pretty basic level, yeah. you know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's, it's meeting pretty basic low level needs. Um, it also gives us status and sense of security and existential meaning and all those other things um, by our contributions to, to science. And so we've built in these institutions that like when companies have groupthink problems, what they need to do is just like create something that looks a heck of a lot like peer review. If someone has a report or an idea, send it to three people who can anonymous, anonymously critique it. Mm. But they don't do that. 
politicians don't do that either. They have like their advisors around them, and it's all sycophants for the most part. Um, and then there's one charismatic leader at the table who often demands loyalty. And so that's basically the recipe for groupthink, which has you know very little institutional uh, uh, structure to. Uh, reduced groupthink, where scientists have basically done the exact opposite of that. Do you, do you, um, you know, I understand the idea that it's part of the scientist's, scientist's identity, this, uh, to, to be accurate, but the idea of um, fake news being spread, you know, more rapidly than it used to be, or people believing fake news more readily, I, I would have got the impression it used to be kind of in everyone's identity to sort of be right and be accurate about things and that that's something that's changed or am i wrong to say that is is that not really a sort of standard human being standard issue kind of uh part of your identity that you think accuracy is important yeah we i we all think accuracy is important some people more than others and so uh, i know you had gordon pennycook on the show you know a couple weeks ago he has this great research with you know uh the cognitive response test so some people go with their intuitions and make judgments and even if it gets get it wrong other people are willing to stop take a second kind of work through the logic of their decision making and correct themselves um before they spout off an answer and so they seem to act value you know place a higher value and and they're more you have this kind of intrinsic value placed on accuracy and they're willing to question their kind of gut intuition on things and so it turns out as he's shown convincingly that those people are less likely to believe fake news they're less likely to get sucked into partisanship and so you can as an individual also cultivate a sense of concern and care around accuracy and if that is highly valuable to you it is probably going to trump pardon the term, uh, these other goals that you might have to fit in and belong and so forth. So like, I want to uh, jump in here and ask one question uh, about the potentially different way. I mean, you point out that in your uh, model that you suggest, like accuracy and uh, being epistemically interested in truth or whatever you want to call that, uh, um, maybe one thing, and then there is a belonging and uh, status, and maybe there are some other goals that may be playing a role. But I want to f- point out um, another possibility, like, you know, like, why bother if there is a huge uh, discrepancy, and if you don't believe that the other side would uh, correspond in kind, in the sense that, you know, you may be interested in being all this peaceful and wonderful and compromising, but the other side may not be interested in doing that. They want to screw you over. And so, like, how do we reduce that? How do we reduce this perception of polarization? So, like, I talked to a few people about that, like one person uh, whom I greatly admire here from Canada, and Wilson also works on this topic. Like, how do we reach this common ground? And uh, she talks about, like, emphasizing similarities versus differences. Now, what do you think about that? Can we, can we actually get to the emphasizing what are the differences, uh, what are the similarities among the liberals and republicans or between conservatives, uh, liberals and conservatives, uh, Democrats and Republicans in the United States? Or is that futile? Yeah, so I think that 
she's operating based on many years of impressive studies showing that if you focus on similarities or uh, in my research, creating a shared sense of identity and right. that, that we've known that for 60 years, that that is one way to bring groups together. So this maybe goes back to the first comment about um, superheroes. Uh, well, one of the things that happened in the Watchmen was um, it was supposed to be this existential threat to humanity caused right. by this disaster centered in New York, I believe it was. And this is a common trope in alien movies. So if you've ever watched Independence Day, the moment these alien ships start covering over all the major cities in the world, you start cheering for people who are otherwise your adversaries. Mm, So this is something that is a possibility. And it certainly happened in the U.S. after 9-11. You know, the president's approval went from 50% to about 90% pretty much uh, overnight. So that that happens. Our identities are fluid and flexible and, and shift, and we can focus on similarities in the moment uh, or nationally, and uh, that can get us to you know, find some common ground. Um, the problem that you're talking about, I think, is that if someone's disingenuous or is not uh, open to learning and, and being in a sincere debate, they're not going to change their mind, and they might be manipulating uh, an audience or ourselves. And this is why I think a lot of debate structure actually doesn't move the conversation forward, because if people are disingenuous or, um, you know, deny the rights and perspectives of another person, you know, before they take the stage, then it's not going to be a fruitful debate for most people. Um, so I think you have to create a context where people can uh, share a sense of purpose and try to learn from the discourse. So like part of that is also to believe uh, that the differences are not as dramatic and uh, actually you can overcome those differences in the first place. And I think uh, part of uh, what Anne uh, has been telling me recently is that uh, people believe that the polarization is much greater than it actually is in many instances. Yeah, so, she, so she's right. So and, and so are people. People are right to believe that polarization is worse now, for example, in the U.S., than it's been in 50 years. Right. So that's a that's totally correct, and yet we overestimate it. <laughs> so yeah. it, there, it's true that there and it's is dangerous. It, it drives the polarization yeah, even more. It, yeah. So it's true that there is polarization. It's true that it's at historically high levels. It's true that polarization that we have is dangerous and problematic. But it's also true that it's overestimated. And so, and it's also true that you know the average liberal and conservative probably share more in common than they have differences. So. Um, and when we talk about things like differences in openness and conscientiousness, well, as you know, with most things in psychology, there's huge distributions on those traits that are high, highly overlapping between liberals and conservatives. And there's only about 5% of the variance in the average person's openness is explained by their political ideology. So these things are true and they're bad, and yet they're also overestimated and, and overhyped and overemphasized. And so... That means that I think there's a potential to connect to people who are different than us. We have to be careful in how we talk about these these things and also careful to understand that there's a human at the other end of it who probably shares a lot in common with us. How does it, how's it working out for you, Jay? And, you know, because you you must, you know, you have the family, you have different views and brother-in-laws and things like, or your brother, I'm not sure. Are you employing some of these kind of strategies in your own uh, interactions and, and how's it going? 
Yeah, so this is true. So one thing I found when I was disagreeing with uh, at least one family member politically is, you know, you can't do this thing where you just try to, you know, dominate them. Mm. They're not going to be open-minded. You have to hear them out. There's research showing you have to listen. Um, you have to be willing to fact-check your own sources, mm. um, because they will if you don't. <laughs> and and that because um, they're going to be scrutinizing it yeah. and engaging in motivated reasoning. Um, and then I think the other thing I've tried to do is to take people like that who are reading conservative news sources. They're not going to read the New York Times. But I've tried to do kind of an off-ramp from sources like Breitbart to sources like the Wall Street Journal right. or the National Post. So higher quality with better editorial oversight conservative news sources. Mm. And so that way, when they're reading it, they feel like it's coming from a source that they'll trust and that respects them. Right. Um, but at least you know that they're getting higher quality information. And so a lot of people worry that, like, I'll use, well, you mentioned Jordan Peterson's book on my shelf, that that's, you know, liberals have argued that's an on-ramp to the alt-right. But so not the maps of meeting, maybe. maybe not uh, maps of meeting, yeah. Maps of meeting has nothing ideological. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anybody who's actually read it, um, yeah. which is very few people, probably. <laughs> um, but, but they worry that Jordan Peterson's an on-ramp to the alt-right. But Compared to other stuff people might be reading, like Milo, um, Jordan right. can be an off ramp, and then you can have them read, uh, right. you know, something from from uh, you know uh, John Height. So there is increasingly higher quality, more scientifically derived uh, media, and so instead of just saying somebody's a lost cause to you politically. Yeah. I would try to find incrementally higher quality news sources or books for them to read that they can kind of increasingly get higher quality uh, information into their belief system. So I suppose two things there is one is like, that's a tricky conversation, isn't it? Like, how yeah. about you read something a little bit more high quality here? I can send you some <laughs> literature. That's quite a difficult thing to do. And I guess my second question was, do you have any examples of it happening backwards to you and you embracing it? Because, you know, if we're going to ask yeah. people to be open in this way, we would also need to be open to yeah. someone saying, hey, maybe you should try reading this. Yeah, so I have tried. I mean, I've written mm -hmm. for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, about things like bias and identity, and right. I, but I've tried to do it in a way that I think would be understanding and appealing to the, the goals of, of that audience, uh -huh. but in a way that you know is helpful. I think um, I've read Breitbart. I'm not convinced by it, but I've actually found that you know many of the stories are true, and then they sprinkle in a lot of stuff that's meant to be you know anti-immigrant or anti-media mm. stories into surrounded by many stories that actually are not inaccurate. And so I've been willing to read and try to understand those perspectives. Mm. Um, and, and so I think that that at least opened my eyes to where a lot of people are coming from. Right. And as a psychologist, I think that's like always critically important. And I'm willing to have those conversations with people who I disagree with and not everybody is. And I f often feel like there's something to be learned. So I'm, I'm willing to do it. I'm a psychologist yeah. who studies these things. And if I'm completely have blinders on to perspectives that differ than mine, I'm going to forever design flawed studies. So you have to be willing to engage and, and learn and, and have con conversations and read things that are outside of your narrow sliver of literature that you have. I suppose because you, as a scientist, you highly value accuracy. So you feel that that will increase the, the accuracy of your understanding of the world by yeah. accessing more opinions and more perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this was really illuminating. 
we definitely learned a few tricks about how to potentially look across the aisle. I did. I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners did as well. Okay, great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jay. That was fascinating. Eye-opening. Eye and um, it's given me lots to think about, but perhaps too much. Um, <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming on the show. In today's podcast, we talked about political polarization and how moral emotions drove people around the globe towards an increasingly polarized world. Polarization is the worst in the last 50 years, both in the US and elsewhere. And it is partially due to biases, which concern people's fundamental motives to belong to groups, to seek objectivity and truth, but also to engage with others on social media. On social media, we have so-called echo chambers, networks of equally minded people, which prevent us from hearing alternative viewpoints. We also learned that despite ever-increasing polarization, in our minds, polarization appears even greater than it actually is, preventing us from engaging with people of different political orientation. At the end, we talked about possible solutions. Discussion of ways to interact with people who have different political beliefs than we do. For instance, in political discussions, it may benefit to include evidence from high-quality news sources, even if they lean in a direction one generally does not support. It also helps to focus on similarity rather than difference. After all, we are all humans. Finally, it may benefit to seek people's opinions who don't share one's viewpoints, including one's political viewpoints, and who would not shy away from pointing out one's political misconceptions. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening to the On Wisdom Podcast. Thank you.